Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Well, hello, EM communities of the world. It has certainly been a long time, and I know that time seems to be universally distorted for everyone right now, but I will attest that the COVID pandemic has gotten the better of me and my schedule and EM Guidewire's team's production schedule as well. But let us not dwell on the negativity. Let's look forward and remain positive. One thing that keeps me positive around here at Carolina's Medical Center is our amazing emergency medicine residents and our entire emergency medicine team. Talk about superstars and powerhouses. They are the best. So when one of my chief residents, Dr. Servin, said, hey, we need to get this EM Guidewire train back on the tracks, of course I was inspired to do so. So let's sound the horn and pull this train out of the station. Today, Dr. Servin will be joined by her amazing colleague, Dr. Alyssa Thomas, who, by the way, you may know from her work from the EM Guidewire's radiology reading room. If you haven't checked that out, you need to do so right now. Pause this recording and go check it out on the website. Really awesome educational images there. The two of them will be discussing the important topic of pulmonary edema and the initial management that can hopefully help get your patient also back on the train tracks to recovery. So without further ado, here's Dr. Servin and Thomas. You guys take it away. Hey, this is Victoria Servin, one of the third years at the EM Guidewire. And I'm Alyssa Thomas. I'm also a third year. And we're just going to kind of quickly talk to you guys about how to handle a patient who presents to you in a hypertensive emergency with signs of pulmonary edema. Very classic patients you get to see here in the ED. So we'll kind of start off with a medic call, and then Alyssa will kind of talk us through how she gets ready for these patients when she gets a medic call. Sounds good. So let's say you have a 57-year-old male who medic calls overhead, and they say that they picked him up complaining of shortness of breath. He's got a history of CHF, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. They said he looks pretty bad in obvious respiratory distress. He's also got some big swollen legs. He told them he ran out of all of his medications like four days ago. They report the following vital signs. Blood pressure of 210 over 140, heart rate of 130, respiratory rate of 45. When they found him, he was saturating 78% on room air. Since then, they put him on BiPAP and he's up to 89%. So, Alyssa, do you have any instructions that you would give medic? Well, typically, medic is usually good here, but if they haven't already, they a lot of times will put nitro paste on just to buy the patient some time until they get here to the ED. So if they haven't done that already, I would recommend that they either give sublingual nitro or put the nitro paste on because it'll be more longer acting. And then as medic's arriving, how would you start prepping your room? So once I hear this story, is very classic flash pulmonary edema, that's the first thing that comes to my mind, especially with history of CHF and what they mentioned, the increased leg swelling. And they're already on BiPAP, so really it's just trying to get the room ready. So I would call RT, let them know we have a patient coming in, history of CHF, ran out of medications, hypoxic, currently on BiPAP. Could they get the BiPAP machine set up? So that's already there and ready. We always like to be prepared. So whenever we are, have a patient coming with respiratory distress in general, it's always good to have the airway equipment set up suctions. Always, we are going to have BiPAP on for our, our pre-oxygenation. I always have the nurse pull medications, ketamine, rock, have them pull at, get that ready at bedside. And I always have backups, obviously, bougies, you know, OPAs, NPAs, all that good stuff. 
And in the meantime, since I'm already thinking that this patient, you know, this is hypertension of emergency with that elevated blood pressure, you know, like CHF exacerbation, classically, we already know the medication that's good for this is nitroglycerin. So it takes a little bit of time for the nurses to get that. So if I already know this patient is coming, a lot of times I like to have the nurses go ahead. Why don't you just give me some sublingual nitro so we can have that ready. We can just give that to the patient right when they arrive, but then also get the nitro drip out so that we can get that started once we have good IV access. Great preparation. I think one thing that sometimes I forget when patients come in on BiPAP, if I'm worried that I will intubate them, to like hang a nasal cannula just because yes. you want that, you still want that passive oxygenation. Exactly. If you do move to tube. So when the medic arrives, the patient's blood pressure is down to 190 over 110. And I will say just as kind of like another tangent that the blood pressure number that I almost always remember is the systolic because it's high and yes. scary. <laughs> Same. I'm just like, I don't know, it was 230. <laughs> <laughs> But the one that we actually care about is the patient's MAP, which is largely driven by diastolic pressure. Agreed. So if you remember, the MAP is diastolic times two plus systolic over three. So I can't do that math in my head, Tor. No. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, if they're like diastolic is really high, that should be super concerning. And luckily, our monitors calculate a MAP for us. Thank God. Um, (laughs) Just remember that a normal is 70 to 100. So if they're much higher than 100, you should get scared. Like this patient, obviously. Yeah. 110, diastolic blood pressure, coming in hypoxic. Yep, I'm worried. Yeah. So when they get there, let's say RT turns to you and they're like, I'm new. I don't know what settings to put them on. Lovely. Well, I always say 10 over 5. That's common. (laughs) They just go straight to that. 10 is the common initial setting for the inspiratory positive airway pressure. And then the 5 is usually the common initial setting for the expiratory positive pressure. And typically, you just adjust by two to five centimeters HTO at a time. Usually, initial setting, again, go straight to like a peep of five to eight. Just start off that way, see how the patient's doing, and then you can titrate up because you're really trying to, you know, basically get those alveoli to open up. So you want to try to turn the peep up if possible. Respiratory rate, put it at 10 to 12, very straightforward. The FiO2, it's fine to go ahead and start it at 100% right off the bat. But honestly, this is more of a ventilation issue, not an oxygenation. Even though the patient's hypoxic, their alveoli are flooded with fluid, essentially. So you can start off at 100% if you just want basic settings in your head, 10 over 5, PEEP of 5, respiratory rate 10 to 12, and then FiO2 at 100. But really the goal is to help the patient ventilate rather than oxygenate. And doing all this kind of restores the patient's functional residual capacity, recruits more alveoli, and decreases right-to-left shunting. So overall, it improves our ventilation. One thing that we do want to watch out for in any patient that we put on BiPAP is a decreased return of preload and some subsequent hypotension. But in this case, lowering their blood pressure is our goal. So hopefully it works in our favor. Usually. So you've got your nitro drip started. The patient's on BiPAP. They're looking a little bit better. What do you want to call for as far as labs and imaging? Yeah, every time, straightforward, call for a portable chest x-ray stat. That way you can get a good picture of their lungs, see what you're working with. Typically, when I'm at bedside, if I have the ultrasound, it's nice because you can take a look. Obviously, you listen and you can hear a lot of crackles if they are present, but also you can have the bedside ultrasound. And I use that for two things. One, I like to look at the lungs. You can see if there's fluid there. You can look for basically lots of B lines is what you're going to be looking for. But then also, depending on the history, I like to look at the cardiac function too, because you can assume that, you know, this is hypertensive emergency, but you also just want to make sure that this isn't 
worsening, you know, a new MI or like their ejection fraction is nothing. So I love to take a look at the heart with these patients, always get an EKG for that exact reason. I just think that's really important. All that like imaging stuff is super important for your whole differential because even though they're presenting like a hypertensive pulmonary edema, like you said, it could be a late presentation for an MI and they've just ruptured their mitral valve or they've got severe aortic stenosis that's backing up. Or if you put the probe on and they have totally normal cardiac function, you have to think about non-cardiac causes of pulmonary edema. Love it. So always, you know, ED, we love ultrasounds. Put the ultrasound on there, see what you can see. Lab-wise, CBC, BMP, troponin, BNP, all those things are basic. I think sometimes people will argue if it's like a super obvious CHF exacerbation, do you really need a BNP? Because they're kind of expensive and you should be able to diagnose it clinically. Agreed. But I've also found sometimes when I don't get it, my admitting team is like, well, where's the BNP? I agree. (laughs) A lot of this stuff I like to get for the inpatient team. The VBG I like to get when they first come in, especially if they're on BiPAP, because as you guys know, BiPAP machines are not unlimited. So it's nice to get a VBG and then you can get another VBG to kind of basically reassess. I think it can help you get an idea of where you're going. Does this patient need to be on BiPAP longer? Can we try to take them off? You know, what is the patient's disposition? I mean, obviously this patient sounds like they're going to go to the unit, but sometimes you may have someone that can turn around if you can treat them with all the other medications that we talked about. Yeah. And one lab that I started getting after my rotation on our cardiac ICU was LFTs, just to kind of make sure if the patient has right heart failure Mm -hmm. or if they are suffering from biventricular failure, then if their LFTs are bumped, it could be a sign of hepatic congestion or heart failure. So let's kind of circle back and talk about medication really quick. When the patient first got there, I know you said you were going to pull out nitro, but how are you going to give the nitro? Yeah, so nitro, it's I love that medication, especially for these cases. I go ahead and have the nurse just go ahead and give the patient four nitroglycerin tabs by mouth, and then in the meantime, we can get the drip started. When you start the nitroglycerin drip, you want to start it high. You want to start it at like 100, 150 mics per minute. You can bolus the nitroglycerin, but sometimes knowing that the patient already had nitro paste and you're about to start the drip, giving a large bolus of nitroglycerin can make people feel a little bit uncomfortable. So plus or minus, depending on how comfortable your team is that day, you can do a nitroglycerin bolus and then start the drip, or you can at least start the drip high at 100, 150 mics per minute. And then typically you evaluate the patient and you can titrate the drip up as needed, 20 to 50 mics per minute every five minutes or so, because nitroglycerin is a fast medication, fast on, fast off. So when you're titrating the nitroglycerin, I think it's important you mention how we always focus on the systolic blood pressure, and then that's kind of what they look for when they're titrating the drip. However, you really want to focus on more patient symptoms, how they're feeling, how they're looking, how they're sounding, you know, what their oxygen requirement is, things like that to really help guide, you know, how much nitroglycerin you really need. Also, I like to, if I know the patient, I usually ask them, we already know this patient didn't take their meds in four days. A lot of these patients are on Lasix. So a lot of the times I would just ask them if they're on Lasix. If I have the EMR ready with their information pulled up, I see how much Lasix are on and I give more than that. And you want to give a large dose of Lasix IV. And this is also helpful for the inpatient team, which a lot of the inpatient team colleagues have told me is that, you know, they have to redose that Lasix every six hours. So once we give a small bolus, it kind of sets the patient back and can prolong their hospital stay. So don't be afraid to give a large bolus of Lasix. And if their creatinine is elevated, that's more of a reason why you should give an even larger bolus of Lasix because it won't work. 
it can actually improve your renal function too in these patients. So it's, I think sometimes it can make people uncomfortable because we just talked about, oh, give some legal nitro. Oh, also start them on a nitro drip. Oh, by the way, I want to give 60 or 80 of Lasix IV. And then everyone looks at you almost, what are you talking about? You're going to drop this patient's blood pressure. But yeah. Lasix is going to take time. Yeah. And like you said, as far as improving renal function, right now they're not perfusing their organs. Exactly. And so if you're getting them, if you're taking off some fluid and you're improving their contractility and their circulation, then their kidneys are going to get perfused and be much happier. Exactly. There are some other medications that we can use if you're not a fan of the nitro drip. I know it gives some people wicked headaches. And <laughs> <laughs> I've had patients say, like, no, you're not putting me on that. Also, morphine, Tylenol, ibuprofen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only that one with the D word. Basically. So you can use uh, nicardipine. I feel like cardine drips are something that I start often. I don't usually do it for some reason. Pulmonary edema, I guess, because I like the afterload and preload reduction with nitro. Right. I usually go straight to that, but I use cardine drips in other hypertensive emergencies all the time. There's also a new super expensive medication called clavidipine, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, which if your hospital has it and can afford it, it's <laughs> supposed to be a great drug. We do not have that. And then there's nitroprusside, which makes people uncomfortable because if you leave it on, you're not watching the patient. They could, you know, get methemoglobinemia. Not good. <laughs> so what is your overall goal of blood pressure for these patients once they come in? So typically, you know, standard of practice, I guess, is systolic blood pressure less than 160. But again, like you talked about earlier, we really care about the diastolic and the MAP and symptoms is really what you go to. But when you're looking at the blood pressure, systolic blood pressure less than 160. But I think that that's very variable, obviously, because a lot of people have blood pressures around 160 at baseline. That's another important point. You don't want to drop them too much. I know mm -hmm. I worry about it a lot when they're like having altered mental status or signs of intracranial issues, but also important to note when they're just coming in as a hypertensive emergency for other reasons. Exactly. You don't want to take them from 230 to 120. Because then they'll feel lightheaded and pass out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you got another problem. Yeah. Um, and then since your patient's on BiPAP, they came in already feeling like they're not breathing well, and then we force air into their face. <laughs> so they might need a little bit of anxiolysis. And so I think my go-to for this is usually my favorite drug in the emergency department, ketamine. Um, yes. <laughs> it works for all. Yeah. I just put them on a little bit, but we recently got Presidex. I love Presidex. Yeah. Love it. And so I've kind of changed my practice to use Presidex for these patients that come in pulmonary edema. Ketamine's good for some other things that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Maybe bronchodilation with asthma, maybe. Yeah. But they seem to tolerate Presidex really well. It's easily titratable. And since now we have it in our Pixis, our nurses can get it pretty fast. Exactly. But if you don't, you can always give small boluses of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Probably the only opioid I'd be comfortable giving because it's short acting. Yes, I would be a little bit nervous giving this patient anything else. Yeah. Definitely don't want us to date them or take away any of their respiratory drive. Benzodiazepines make me a little nervous. I know that you can give, obviously, just a short bolus of Versed to kind of help them. Just makes me a little bit nervous because we want their respiratory drive. So it kind of makes me nervous to give them a benzodiazepine. Circling back to Presidex, one thing to note, especially if you're an intern and you're using it for the first time, the main side effect that you're going to see from it is bradycardia. bradycardia. <laughs> and so don't be surprised if the nurse comes running up to you and they're like, their heart rate just went to 60. And everyone's kind of freaking out in the room because they were just tachycardic. Stop the Presidex strip is the first. <laughs> <laughs> 
the pads are probably already on the patient at that point. You'll be prepared. And just kind of recheck them, make sure they don't have altered mental status, they're still oxygenating, there's not another reason for them to be bradycardic, but that means they failed their Presidex trial. You gotta switch to something else. So when it comes to meds, there are a couple studies that we just wanted to point out quickly that kind of help guide how we're using these meds and which medications to use. So there's a study called the use of nitroglycerin by bolus prevents intensive care unit admissions in patients with acute hypertensive heart failure. And this was published in 2017 in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this was a retrospective cohort chart review in which they looked at patients who received repeated nitroglycerin boluses versus an infusion versus a bolus then an infusion. And the boluses were between 500 and 2,000 micrograms. So the primary outcome from this study was need for ICU admission, not mortality. They found that in the bolus-only group, 48% of those patients required admission. In the infusion-only group, 67 required admission. And oddly enough, in the combination group, 79% required admission. Very odd. So it seemed that intermittent boluses had lower ICU admissions and as a secondary outcome, they looked at total length of hospital stay, which was also lower in the bolus group, and there was no difference in adverse effects. I'd say my only big question with that is, I know if anyone's on an infusion in our hospital, they have to go to the ICU, kind of regardless mm-hmm. of how they're looking. Yes. I also feel as if the thing that makes me nervous about having to re-bolus is we're in a busy emergency department, and I imagine you're going to have to go back to re-bolus frequently and reevaluate that patient which can take up a lot of resources and time. And if you get behind, then it can almost be detrimental. Yeah. And also, if I'm not admitting them to an ICU, I'm not as confident that they will get re quickly. Exactly. Agreed. So two other studies, if you're looking for a different medication to use. The Pronto study in 2014 showed that clavidipine achieved blood pressure and symptom control faster than the standard of care medications, which included nitro. So clavidipine is... Also, a calcium channel blocker, it's pretty much the same mechanism as cardine, but it's better in that it's faster on, faster off. There was a, another trial done in 2014 called the Eclipse trial, where they looked at clavidipine because people were kind of harping on how expensive it was. Their question was, if this medication is more expensive, but it benefits the patient more and gets them out of the ICU faster, is it worth it in the end? And so they found that use of clavidipine decreased ICU length of stay, time to extubation, and overall hospital length of stay with an average savings of $921 per patient, which I think compared to their entire ICU bill, probably a drop in the bucket, (laughs) sadly. Yes. But over time, if, say, you save $920 on 10 patients that month. I can see it it maybe being worth it. I think that's it. Thank you for hanging out with us. Hope this helped your initial management of a hypertensive patient with pulmonary edema. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. Seems he out. <laughs> yeah, we're recording. Okay. I didn't think of an intro. I know. I was like, <laughs> how are we going to start this? <laughs> um...